it's the wrong question to be asking. How can I find a mentor? It's a much better question to say, how can I build a, a network, a small network? A developmental network is not your whole social network. It's just a handful of relationships um, that you actively seek and nurture and perhaps end when they're no longer serving you. And it requires a lot of relational skill. That was today's guest, Kathy Cram, Professor Emeritus of Management and Organizations at Boston University. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an Associate Professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire, and you are listening to Flourishing in the World, a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life. Dr. Cram is a world-renowned researcher best known for her foundational work on mentoring in the workplace. In this interview, we talk about how she came to study mentorship and later developmental networks, what it means to be a mentor, and she gives me a little mentoring on how to be a better mentor to my students. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening, or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is Kathy Cram. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to be talking with you today. Uh, as I was saying a minute ago, I'm a big fan of your work. You've had a lot of influence on on my thinking. So real privilege to have a chance to talk with you. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity as well. So let's start with what I call your superhero origin story. You were a math major at MIT. How did you come? Know that. Yeah. <laughs> a little known fact. A little, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how did you come to from being a math major to you ultimately wind up with a PhD in organizational behavior? Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that path. Well, I ended up at MIT because I was uh, an overachiever in grade school and high school. And I happened to be very good in math and I became president of the math club and the other important factor is that my father was a graduate of MIT, and I always admired him. He was, in many ways, a role model and a coach to me and my professional development. And um, at that point in history, which was 1968, there, MIT had just started admitting women on a larger than just a few a year. So we had 50 women in my class of a thousand students. And wow. uh, I felt really privileged to be there. But that was the beginning, first of all, of becoming very interested in gender issues, because it was a very male dominated place, more so than any place I had ever been to that point in my life. And secondly, I realized within a year of being there that I did not want to spend my life doing mathematics, that I had my more fundamental passions were really about what makes people tick. You know, I always was very interested in that. And because I was at MIT, 
they had two kinds of psychology. They had experimental psychology, which is all about working with animals. And then they had organizational psychology. In fact, MIT was the founding place for the field of organizational psychology with Warren Bennis and many other founders, Edgar Schein, Douglas McGregor. These are all founders of the field. Um, So I sort of happened into it. That's, you know, it sort of piqued my interest. I got into it and I developed a passion for understanding why people behave the way they behave, particularly in settings. You know, it wasn't just of the mind. It was of how people interact with various contexts that they live and work in. So there's a sociological and a psychological bent there. And I went to work, and because I got my MBA, and then I worked in the insurance industry for a couple of years doing human resource management. Uh, And again, uh, very aware of gender issues, um, because this, again, was 1972, and it wasn't a very hospitable place to young women. And also realizing that, you know, the corporation, the large organization, really has an impact on people's lives, regardless whether they're a floor sweeper or an executive. And I came to understand as I matured and got older that my family was very much shaped by the corporate life my dad lived. He was an executive for his career, very senior level executive. He was never home. He traveled all the time, you know, and I began to understand how all of that impacted the family that I grew up in. So that's how I got to organizational behavior. Okay. And and what made you decide to leave industry and go back to get your PhD instead of pursuing? Well, I had a very clear, well, I told you the gender obstacles were obvious. But also, I did not, I didn't necessarily like the culture of the company I worked for. And I got this idea that it would be better to be more independent, not be employed by, but instead a consultant working from outside. And I started talking to my mentors from undergraduate and graduate school about that. And without and any exception, they all say you sh- if you have it and you get a PhD, it'll give you much more autonomy to do what you want to do in this field. And so that's why I did it. So were you think you were thinking like go get the PhD and, and come back and be a consultant? consultant. Yeah. Okay. But I was I was uh, transformed in graduate school by a mentor, a couple of mentors. Uh, and this is, you can see where the interest in mentoring comes from. I'm a, I'm a natural mentee. I love to learn from people who have more experience than me. And uh, I discovered this world of research and decided ultimately to go the academic route. Uh, but I've always had my 
hands in consulting. I don't think I would find meaning in research that didn't have some direct practical application. Because I'm more of a practice. I'm, I'm what some people call a scholar practitioner. Okay. I like to have a foot in both worlds. And, uh, and that must have, I mean, that must have benefits to you as a, as a scholar to have that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A synergy between the two. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what drew you to qualitative research? Um, your math major, MIT, yeah. I'm thinking big numbers and, you know, right. big data. Well, you know, that's, it's such a good question. And I think the methods we choose relate to our learning style. And I always found it more stimulating to look, to listen to people tell their story than I did to look at numbers on a questionnaire. And during my training as a researcher, I did both. I did questionnaire development and I analyzed quantitative data, but it was always the qualitative studies that inspired me. And I think it just has to do with how I learn and what I value. And i that's where I could discover things I didn't understand prior. So that's what yeah. caused me to continue. I, I happen to, you know, I follow your, I follow your lead on that. I, I, I love uh, talking to people and, and working from that kind of data. Um, you work in a, in the broader field of careers Right. And um, I thought you might, I, I might ask you to kind of, because that was, uh, 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 as I was telling before we started recording, like I, I kind of stumbled into the field. Um, somebody eventually was like, you need, you know, you need to go to, you need to go to uh, Academy of Management and you need to go to the careers, you know, the career sessions and then you'll oh, find good. your people. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. Um, but can you tell for, for people who yeah. aren't familiar with the field, what, what is, what does it mean to in the careers field to study the careers field? Well, I would say that uh, it's the application of psychology to an individual as they travel through life over the course of, a, of the life course or over the, the pathway of the total life course. So people in the careers might study young adults just entering the world of work, or they might study people at mid-career who are making major career changes, or as I was just doing, I just finished a study with five colleagues on the transition to retirement and what that's all about. So it's investigating how people experience different stages of life and career. So just as there are theories of adult development, theories of career development focus more on the work context and the career context. And the person, I was very fortunate when I started doing my research in graduate school, I came across Tim Hall's name, Douglas T. Hall. Have you come I, across? I'm very familiar with his work as well. Oh, good. You ought yeah. to interview him, by the way. Oh, that he, would be fabulous. 
He's a good friend of mine. He's been working on this project with me on retirement. I came across his work and it really inspired me how he talked about how the self-concept evolves over the course of the career and how the context and the job and the culture all influence that process of development. So so he got he introduced me to the field. I don't remember what your original question was. Uh um, I was asking you about careers fields. So this is, yeah. you know, and how you, he's how you... one of, he's one of the founders of that. He, I mean, there were people in the generation before him, but he started the careers division at the Academy. Oh, okay. All so, right. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so, well, Tim Hall is the founder of career of the careers field. You are generally regarded as the founder of the study of mentorship at work. You literally wrote the book on mentoring called Mentoring yeah. at Work uh, back in 1985, which I was just looking on Google Scholar has a mere 7,500 uh, uh, citations to it, um, yeah. which is pretty impressive for those of you who are not who are listening or are not researchers. It's, right, uh, and that's a and that's an understatement. Um, so, and and it's a fabulous book. I just reread it the other uh, 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 the other day in preparation for for our, our interview, and it's just still so rich. I think uh, with a lot of thought. So I, I, I wanted to ask you, what was it that drew you to the study of mentorship specifically within the careers field? You know, I think it's it reflected in what I shared with you about my journey early in my career. Relationships were always so central to my decision making and my learning. I'm just, I am by nature, a very relational person. And the specific, I do have one specific anecdote. I was taking a seminar with Dan Levinson at oh, yeah. Seasons of a Man's Life. Seasons of a Man's Life. Great book. And Great book. Dan has in that book four pages on the importance of the mentor relationship for young men as they enter the adult world. So my first reaction was, well, what about women? I was always saying sure. that when I was a graduate student. But more importantly, there's this four pages, this isn't enough. We need, that's what stimulate. that's when I came up with the idea of studying mentoring for my research. Because okay. there was none at that point other than a couple of, HBR or ASTD, a couple of practitioner articles, short ones, um, that said mentors are really important, but didn't really tell us much about what they do and how to make it happen in your life and so on. So that's why I decided to study it. I, I've, um, so I have another podcast where I talk to healthcare executives, and I've probably talked to about 80 at this point. And one of the things I kind of, when I finish, as I approach the end of the interview with them, I always ask them about their leadership and, and I ask them about mentorship and how important has that been in their career. And it's really interesting because I, when I first started answering, asking that question, I thought I'd get like, oh, well, you know, of course if it was, you know, so-and-so that helped me, you know, get through. And I actually find, found over time that it's really kind of a mixed bag of responses. I mean, it's, some do, in fact, say like, oh, yeah, I would never have gotten there if it hadn't been for Joe and 
Jill and Bob yeah. and whatever, you know, but there are, but a lot of them are like, yeah, not really. You know, I didn't really have anybody and, and, or, or I had kind of like anti-mentors. I had people that yeah. were negative role models that I, you know, more than, 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 than positive. And it just, I find that fascinating. Um, and I wonder, I wanted to kind of bounce off you, your thought, because I'm going to ask you here in a second, like, what is a mentor? Um, but kind of like, is, is it a, is it a problem of like, people have such, it's such a vaguely uh, understood idea that we just don't have a common idea of well, it that maybe. Yeah. I have a few hypotheses about All right. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, one is that there are a lot of people who lack the awareness, the self-awareness to appreciate how others are actually supporting them. So they don't see it. They don't, they just, they don't think in those terms. So you ask them, did you have mentors? And they said, no, I just worked hard and I seized opportunities and I made it on my own. That's a very common response, particularly from men. Another is the ambiguity about the term mentoring. Uh, and in fact, when I started my first study, I did not use the word mentor. I, I said, as you look at back on your career, can you identify people who helped you get to where you are? Or if I'm talking with a young person, I will say, is there anyone around you who stands out as taking an interest in your development? So I wouldn't use the word mentor because it is confusing. And because some people associate mentorship with something quite godlike that they don't think it's possible to realize anyway. It never happened for them. When in fact they did, when you learn about all the complexities and the different forms that mentoring can take, it doesn't have to be uh, a lifelong relationship. In fact, it usually isn't. And it can, the impact can be muted by other circumstances. So I'm not surprised. Okay. Yeah. Well that's those are interesting those are interesting hypotheses yeah. um uh, that are probably right on i'm sure so you your your first book grew out of i believe it grew out of your dissertation is that yeah. correct yeah it was that book uh, that study and then i also did a study of peer mentoring about 6 years later that i incorporated into the book as well okay. so yeah so, could you talk a little bit about what were you what were you doing? Um, you know, uh, you were studying. Who who were you studying? What what was the organizational context? And yeah, it was a it was a business organization in, in uh, utilities, private utilities. And I interviewed. Uh, I asked the HR person there to get me a list of people young people between the ages of 25 and 35 who they thought might have experience being mentored. And what was interesting about this company is that they did have a talent management process where they had identified people as high potential. So the thought was, 
probably those who are viewed as high potential, they're more likely to have mentors than those who aren't, because that's how, you know, yeah. that's what attracts mentors is to work with people who are high performing. So they gave me a list and I just started interviewing people and asking them. And when they identified a relationship that sounded to me like a mentor relationship, I asked them if I could interview them again to examine that relationship in more detail. And could I also interview the other person that they were identifying? So I actually had pairs of interviews so I could get a picture of the relationship from both perspectives. And that became the basis for my dissertation. Did you have an operating definition of mentorship as you went into it? or no. So you were trying to actually elicit that. Yeah, that's what I was trying to develop was a definition of mentoring. And as you know from that book, it's basic the way I defined it then, which I have to say is to me quite outdated now. I, I know more now, and the world has changed a lot. But it is foundational to think of it as a relationship between a younger and older adult to adults, where the primary purpose of the relationship is to support the learning and development of the younger person. That's how I defined it. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to define the mentoring functions, which you mentioned earlier, the career functions, act actions that help the young person climb the rope, climb the ladder in a corporate setting. And then the psychosocial functions, which are more about the psychosocial development of the individual. So that, that was a major finding that stimulated all kinds of research by other people. The fact that mentoring has kind of dual purposes. Some of it's very instrumental and some of it's more hum, you know, humanizing or uh, developing human potential in a broader sense than career achievement. Could you give a couple examples of the functions that fall under each of those so we can, so yeah. folks who aren't familiar with it get an idea of what yeah. you're talking about? So career functions are things like sponsorship, coaching, things that are going to help an individual get that next promotion, get that next job, learn that new skill that will make them eligible for something they weren't eligible before, activities that help the younger person prepare themselves for higher levels of responsibility. And then the psychosocial are things like uh, role modeling and friendship and counseling, things that help the younger person develop self-esteem, a sense of worthiness, self-confidence, those more intangible qualities that are kind of hard to develop without mentorship. And actually, personally, I know that for me, those psychosocial functions were very, very critical and to and still are to this day, you know. I don't think we ever outgrow the need for mentorship, actually. When you hear my broader definition, you know. 
Shall I go on to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please. So, you know, the problem with that early definition is it made the assumption that only people in their 20s and 30s have mentors or need mentors. That was the group I decided to study first. But after that, I realized that at every stage of career and life, the need for relational support, which is what I would call it now, is critical. And so I have gradually over these many years, I find myself talking less about mentorship and more about developmental relationships. Because that's a bigger umbrella. Not every developmental relationship is a, is a mentor in the classical sense that I originally defined it. Mm -hmm. But developmental relationships do offer some of the mentoring functions and do help people grow and develop in whatever ways they want. They are aspiring to do so. Yeah. In one of your papers, you talked about you, you had a definition of developmental relationship is something along the lines of allows for co-construction of identities and relational identification. I wanted to ask you, look, what is that? Yeah. So what does that mean? Yeah, that, that's a good, I like that. I don't remember writing. You, you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> you you were, or your co-author. Right? Yeah, right. Higgins, maybe well, I think it might have been. Right. Yes, that's right. Um, yes, Monica Higgins and I, we're basically asserting in that article in 2001 that a developmental relationship implies that both parties are learning, not just the mentor. And both parties are creating the alliance, not just the mentor. So it really emphasized the idea of mutuality and reciprocity, which actually has been brought back by other scholars like Bell Rose Reagans and others to talk about high quality mentoring as involving that reciprocity and mutuality. So it's kind of a myth. My original study, and I think this is because I was only 28 years old when I started the research, I was much more focused on what the young person was getting from the relationship. Because you were uh, a young person. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't <laughs> imagine what the the mentor, yeah. although I asked the question and they did answer the question. You know, they talked about it made them feel so useful and like they had a purpose and the satisfaction from seeing their protégés succeed would would make them feel better about themselves but I you know that kind of I didn't emphasize that and since the idea of developmental relationships has taken hold people look at that a lot more in the research you know the um the learning goes both ways and the learning is richer and deeper when it goes both ways hmm. um that's interesting. So I, I wanted to kind of following that, how do mentoring needs evolve over the career and lifespan from your perspective? Well, we know from research on career development and also uh, adult development 
that there are some predictable tasks and challenges that people face. You know, first you have to get educated, then you have to find a first job, then maybe you get married, you have a family, you know, all these developmental tasks or challenges. And each one of those can benefit from the support of other people. Now, I started by thinking I was focused on a senior person who was older and more experienced, but then I went on to learn how much peers could offer support. Like as a, a young woman, when I was aspiring to be a tenured professor, talking with other women who were also doing that work and trying to get married and have a family as well and all that stuff. It was very helpful. I realized I wasn't alone. I got some good ideas from some of them about how to manage the boundaries between work and life in a way that would allow me to feel good about my entire life space. So that's all to say. And now I just finished a study of retirement And of course, you see it there too. You see about people who are thinking about retiring who benefit very much by talking with others who just went through that decision process, who were already settled in a post-retirement life, that they would gain from having people to talk to about that. So it never stops. Never stops. You've you've we've we've talked quite a bit now about gender influences you talk about cross-gender mentoring yeah. in your book because the the research you were doing was in the well, early 80s uh, late 70s early 80s so again yeah. very male the context where you were doing the interviews was very male dominated uh right. so a lot of these young women that you were talking to who had mentors tended to have male mentors right and, and you talked about some of the challenges of cross-gender mentoring right um, I have a particular interest in this. Let me throw this out out there because the program I teach in, we are somewhere between the, you know, 80 and 90% female. So I think of myself as when I'm a professor, I think of myself as a, a, not just a teacher, but a mentor. I'm helping these kids get ready for professional. So I ask, so I have kind of a double barreled question here. Like, so um, what did you see with the challenges of cross-gender mentoring and What's your advice to me as I try to work with these young ladies uh, and help them get ready and be an effective yeah. mentor to them? Yeah. Well, that's such those are great questions. Um, I think the the some of the stereotypes that were more rigid in the eighties and nineties than they are now, uh, male mentors could be kind of protective, overly protective and fatherly and encouraged without knowing it, their uh, female protégés to to act like good girls rather than competent professionals. I mean, it's I'm simplifying it right now, but the the tendency to fall into stereotypical roles defined by gender, which limit the woman's potential is a problem. So I think for you, you know, to be aware of those and to raise them as discussable items 
when you think they might be shaping the relationship would be a great yeah. idea. I mean, I have I have a colleague uh, who is a lecturer in the department who is a retired hospital CEO, and the and the young ladies just love her. Right. <laughs> She's and, fabulous, but I think there's something else going on there that you know uh, that they can look at her as a role model. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that was the other part of what I was going to say is you as a male mentor for many women, you can encourage your women students to learn from each other, to learn from women who are more senior than they are in their fields. You're doing them a service by encouraging that. Yeah. That makes sense. It does. Yeah, that's 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 great. So you uh so um I want to say one more oh, thing. Yeah, this, absolutely. What we're talking about right now also applies to interracial mentoring, okay, which is more of a hot topic right now, mm-hmm. actually. And there's a lot of research going on on diversified mentoring and how people of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds can engage in effective mentoring and the same kind of challenges they're they're broader than what we just discussed but figuring out how to bridge those differences and develop trust and rapport with people who have very different cultural backgrounds it requires a lot of relational skill that a lot of people don't have that's why a lot of there's a lot uh, of training and cross-cultural communications now. A lot of research emphasizing the importance of people having <clears throat> mentors who are like them, but also mentors who are different than them because they'll learn different things from those two categories of mentors. These are good things to keep in mind in the pluralistic society that we live in. And I think I'm going to circle back to that because I want to maybe think about um, you kind of pivot towards thinking about developmental networks later in your research career. And so I think this is a good, this is actually a useful turning point. So it's what you're kind of seem to be suggesting, like for me and my relationship with my students is I should help them find other mentors to fill in their network. Yes, uh, yes, that's one implication. Another one is you should encourage them to look at their own developmental network and to assess, to be proactive about assessing, well, what kind of, what do I need right now, given the challenges in front of me? What, what, would, what kind of developmental relationship would benefit me? And to encourage them to go out and seek it. So you don't have to, you might give them recommendations on who to contact. You might put in a good word for them. Yeah. But the more important thing is for them. And we have, I have this whole exercise of looking at um, your developmental network. I don't, have you seen the book Strategic Relationships at Work? That um, I have not read that one. Okay. In that book, there is. Okay that exercise and I have a I could send you the PDF of it 
if you're interested. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll send that. Yeah. I can send that to you. Um, Thank you. Because I used to use it in my teaching to, um, and we used to use it in corporate training to teach people how to manage their own developmental network, which is, you know, it used to be, how can I find a mentor? And now the question is, how do I build a developmental network that will support me in what I want to do? Right. Right. Yeah, you actually, so you have another article with Higgins. Let's see, it was the a new mindset on mentoring. Um, yeah. And you, you say, uh, let me see, I, I'm going to read a little passage here. With today's fast-changing technology, increasing global and multicultural and team-based work environments, no one mentor can possibly yeah. provide the guidance and exposure, exposure and opportunities that are essential to effectively managing your current job challenges. So you suggest you need a network, not a um, yeah. sort of sounds like it takes a village. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so how did you come to that? How did you... So you really seem to have made that pivot in like 2001. Yeah, it really was a result of not only my work, but other people's work. And I think I finally recognized that when I did my first study of mentoring, I basically didn't pay attention to the other relationships that people had. I just wanted to know about that one that they identified when I asked them. And then I did the peer study, and then we started looking. I did another project with Tim Hall and several other people on peer coaching, mm -hmm. and we wrote a book about that. And so it's just staring me in the face that it's the wrong question to be asking, how can I find a mentor? It's a much better question to say, how can I build a, a network, a small network? A developmental network is not your whole social network. It's just a handful of relationships um, that you actively seek and nurture and perhaps end when they're no longer serving you. And it requires a lot of relational skill which is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, well, maybe we can do that one another time. That'd be great. Um, yeah, so you you, you mentioned uh, Tim Hall, who is who who I uh, think of when I think of the protean career. Yeah. Um, uh, that was his, one of his big contributions. And you mentioned in the Peer Coaching at Work, you talk about VUCA, uh, which I love, the uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and amb ambiguous. ambiguous. Uh, you know, that's a term that I believe was invented in the army. I think it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. What, uh, why is that? That plays, plays into this developmental network stuff. It really does, because it implies that we're constantly, in the world we live in, we're constantly facing volatility, uncertainty, ambiguity. Um, What's the fourth one? Volatile, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Complex. Yeah. And that environment, operating solo, is a bit overwhelming. We can't possibly know everything we need to know and address every uncertain situation without 
leveraging other people's knowledge, expertise, and interests. So it just makes, you know, the need for a developmental network, I suppose. I mean, I think in simpler times, if further back in history you go, the more this is true, you could just have one mentor and mm-hmm. and that one relationship might endure a very long time, like an apprenticeship, and then you take over the business. Um, but that's so, I mean, people are just moving around so much. Businesses are coming and dying. And, yeah. you know, it's just not the world we live in anymore. I, yeah. When I read your book, uh, you know, seven originally seven or eight years ago, my frame of reference, my own personal frame of reference, as I mentioned, is I had my first career was in the military. Right. And so as I was reading these and, and you're ta- you were talking about like relationships where these people were working together for four or five years, I'm thinking about, that was never, <laughs> you know, I mean, like I moved every two years uh, for yes. most of that. Right. So, yes. so in the military, you're just constantly being shuffled around. And yet, and yet mentorship is an incredibly uh i mean it's a it's a it's a idea that is just hammered in the military it's like an expectation i know i've had a, a number of great opportunities to talk with people in the military and i'm always amazed how they privilege the idea of mentorship and really try to make it happen and it's hard given the structure of the military um but they do definitely see the value in it. Yeah, I, I, I um. So you mentioned you're working on a study on retirement. I've been working on a study of military medical service corps officers like myself who've retired from the military and transitioned to leadership roles in civilian in the civilian world. Right. And one of the th- common themes is the mentorship's not there. Like they come with a different expectation. Uh. Uh. Uh, or their expectation is much, maybe much higher than what I'm not saying that civilian organizations don't have mentorship. Clearly they, you know, they do, but it's a different, I think it's a different animal or a different. Yeah. That would um, be a very interesting study, I would think. And to compare the two in a way. Yeah. yeah I mean, I didn't set out, it was more, my interest was more in the transition and the career transition um, but I, yeah, I think uh, that's probably a worth that in and of itself is probably worth yeah. a study. Um, yeah, um, sure. So you've been working with this uh, idea of networks. I think you've called them constellations as well. I just think that's a, a neat way of, of thinking about it. You also, uh, you have an article talking about a personal board of advisors, yeah. uh, which I, with uh, Cotton and Shen. Right. They, by the way, Cotton and Shen were two of my doctoral students. Oh, that's uh, fabulous. So that was a fun project to do. And um, some really good ideas in there about, in fact, I would often pair that article with the exercise that I told you about, which I'm going to send you. Great. You might want to use it with your students. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, that's something I've only started thinking about. Um, so I, I, and I was just, actually, I was just doing sort of a little doodle on the board just the other day as I'm preparing, as I was thinking about talking to you, I'm like, you need yeah. to have an, you need to have a board of, a, you know, uh, anyway, that, a personal that board term, of advisors. That term, uh, you know, 
I see personal board of advisors as the um, practical term, the lay term for developmental network. Developmental network, I think, is more of an academic term. I don't know. Uh, okay. doesn't, doesn't resonate with people as quickly, I think. Um, I think a similar. board of advisors is pretty buzzy. I think that's it's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. So you so uh, you mentioned, and I was just I waved my copy here of um, Peer Coaching at Work. That's your most recent um, book, yeah. uh, co-authored with Paul and Alan Parker, Parker and, and Eileen Wasserman. Wasserman. Yeah, you had references to peer relationships in your original in your original studies. You seem it seems like this has become a, a, a bigger interest of yours over the years. Yeah. And this book is all about kind of building peer coaching relationships. Can you first kind of differentiate coaching and mentoring or how does that how do those two ideas yeah. relate together? That's a hard one. But the way we did it in the book and and in our discussions over the years Coaching is more work-focused uh, in our definition. So when we're talking about peer coaching, it's about conversations between peers that help both of them be more effective at work. Um, or maybe it's designed to only be helpful to one of them, but the other peer learns by being helpful to the, to the one. So there's mutual learning there. Peer mentoring is broader. It might range all over the map in terms of not only work, but what's going on in life and, you know, a broader range of topics. And also, it doesn't necessarily have a beginning and an end like we talk about in the peer coaching book, where these relationships tend to be shorter term and there, you would make a decision for a period of time. You might work once a month or twice a month or whatever. And at some point you don't necessarily work at all together anymore. So it's a little more structured. Yeah. But again, these definitions really are culturally dependent or context dependent. So, for example, when I would go to an organization and they've got a mentoring program or a peer coaching program, I would ask them, how do you define those? What do you mean by those? Because they're different wherever you go. And the best way, place to start is with their definition uh, and then perhaps help them think more deeply about how they want to define it in order to encourage particular kinds of helping in their organizations. I found the, the, so I found the peer coaching at workbook really fascinating. It's uh, a little more applied. It's definitely more of an, uh, like a, how, here's how you do it yeah. as opposed to your, the, the, the other, the, your original mentoring at workbook was, it was really an academic study. So this is much more practical uh, and meant to be practical. Uh, tell me like, why would, why would I want to, seek out a peer coaching relationship? If you were facing some kind of dilemma that you didn't know how to resolve and you thought it might be good to just reflect on that with someone who's a good listener, 
who cares about you and who might have alternative perspectives to offer. Um, now, in corporate settings, they actually sometimes convene group groups, peer coaching groups of people who are in similar roles, like project manager. Mm -hmm. And a group of project managers would commit to a peer coaching group that might meet once a month or twice a month for a period of three months or for a period of a, whatever. There'd be parameters such that everybody in the group would benefit from the active listening and offering feedback of everybody else in the group. And again, this is an example where relational skills are very important. None of this works unless people know how to listen and know how to give feedback and know how to and have enough self-awareness that they can share of themselves in a way that's going to foster intimacy and self-knowledge. So I, we've got just a few minutes left. I wanted to um, ask, kind of close on a few thoughts on, um, you know, you've spent your career studying mentorship, studying developmental relationships. How has that influenced your own own uh, life, your own out, your own personal outcomes? I have uh, a real reverence for the preciousness of relationships. And I have a, a lot of good friends and connections, and I thrive on them. I think, uh, I don't know which came first, me or the research. Well, obviously, I came before the research, but there's been a mutual influence process there. Yeah. Uh, and they're just very important to me. What, what would you say are some of the important life lessons that you learned as a result of your research? That, uh, oh, wow. Um, being in relationship, whether it's with a person my own age, a person much older, or a person much younger, there's always opportunities to learn. And that it also is true that we're two separate people and what we can hope for is interdependence, not uh, counter-dependence or over-dependence, you know, there's a balance, which is very important and not always easy to achieve. I'm thinking about my adult son, who's uh, 36 now, and he's married, so I have a daughter-in-law, and I want nothing more than to continue to um, grow our relationships. Um, and I look back and I see, well, there was a time when Jason was quite dependent on me. And over the years, he went through his independent phase. And luckily, we made it to a more <laughs> interdependent <laughs> yeah. place. And it's lovely, you know. So finding that balance is, it's not easy, but it's definitely worth it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I uh, have one more kind of fun question, and that would be um, if you had a billboard uh, to have one sentence on it or one word or whatever you would, based on what you've learned, 
what would it what would it say? Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is relationships really matter. That's what I would say. Relationships really matter. Lovely. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for taking your time to so chat with me. So much fun, Mark, really. <laughs> I I appreciate how much you are a student and you really you really dug into my work. I re- not many people do that, you know. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's fascinating. It's it's fascinating. Um you're you're an inspiration. So, thank you. You know, it occurred to me just before we close I was thinking there were a few people I would like to explicitly thank because they were mentors in my life and they helped me so much develop my stream of research, which I talked about with you. So if you don't mind, I'll just take a That sounds great. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So I mentioned my first mentor in graduate school. I didn't mention his name. His name was Clay Alderfer. He's deceased now, but he really opened my eyes to the field of organizational behavior. And I also said that graduate school was a very transforming experience. It was because of him, David Berg and Richard Hackman and Dan Levinson, all of whom were at Yale when I was there contributed to my self-understanding, my discovering my passion and my talents along the way. And I had mentioned Tim Hall, but I really want to mention the unique aspects of my relationship with Tim. It began when I first became a professor at Boston University, and he was there too. And we ended up collaborating for 40 years. And he was my mentor for many years, but then became a peer mentor. And to this day, we still work together. And then a couple more people I thought I would mention are people who, with whom I collaborated, who were also mentors and coaches, whether they were peers or seniors along the way. And I'll just quickly mention their names, Jane Dutton, Emily Heffy. Bill Reagans, Alana Feldman, Bill Kahn, Eileen Wasserman, Monica Higgins, uh, Wendy Murphy, David Thomas, Polly Parker, Rajasi Ghosh, Stacy Blake Baird, and Richard Boyatzis. So I said to you, I was a very relational person, and these names are evidence of that you know, that I really received so many gifts from people along the way who understood the importance of mentoring. Thank you for letting me add that on. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And that's great. And and I think we, we joked a little earlier about it takes a village, uh, exactly. for, you know, for us all to develop. So what a great, uh, what a great way to end the, end our, our chat. So thank you again for, for taking the time. It was yeah. great to talk with you. I enjoyed it. Take care, Mark. Thanks for listening to Flourishing in the World. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening. Until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you.